Thank you for tuning in to RTM Nation Online, where we believe that you will receive the abundance of peace, prosperity, security, stability, health, healing, and truth. If you would like to learn more about the ministry, click the link below. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Now let's get into the message. Well, family, you know, I'm glad to be back with you. You know, my wife and I, we celebrated 29 years of, of marriage. And so that's, you can clap. That's her good fortune. That's her good fortune. Yeah, I made out all right, but she made out really good. And, you know, let me, let me start with that first image just to show you a little bit. We spent about a week together and we just spent some time so we went to a theme park. We also had some time where we just spent some time with each other and we ate some good food. This, this is she and I just, just hanging out and just enjoying time over towards the, we were on the West Coast at that point and we ate some really good food and it's just a good time together. Like I say, if you're married, don't ever let the moments pass you by. Just like you put a little cayenne pepper in that sauce that you be making at the house, treat your relationship the same. Put some spice in that thing. Don't let it go bland. Hey, nobody like to eat bland food. All right? So where are we? I'm, I'm glad to be back with you for sure. And, you know, I, I keep hearing that song in my head of, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. You just look good to, you just look good to me. I, I love you tremendously. And, and it, as a matter of fact, when I say you look good, just look at your neighbor and just say facts. That's just facts. I'm just talking facts right there. You look good. By Jiminy, you look very well. But welcome back to this journey. And this journey that we have is to become stable believers. It's become believers who are not moved by every wind of doctrine. And that little expedition of ours, that journey, it leads us right through the Bible in a very practical way. Some Christians, or just the Christians in general, they're really quick to say, I believe the Bible. But I contend that you can't just leave that statement right there. You can't just stop at that particular statement and say, I believe the Bible, because I think that if you leave that statement there, simply stopping there doesn't build the conviction inside of a Christian that a Christian needs to really be a stable believer. The Bible, your and my orientation in our belief, belief system to what the Bible really is, is a key anchor to us being stable. Simply saying that I believe the Bible isn't good enough. And some people might think this is a trivial fine point, but I don't think it is. A Christian must believe not just the Bible, but they must believe that the Bible is something. They must believe that the Bible is the word of God. Not just the book, but the word of God. Not just words on a page, but the word of God. And as we viewed each and every one of us as having our own spiritual foundation, we said that there were three piles that we wanted to drive into the ground to anchor our foundation around. 
those piles were these. And we're going to put those back on the screen for you so that you can, you can see them. A Christian must believe that the Bible is the word of God. That means there are three piles in that spiritual foundation that are solidly drilled into the ground. A Christian must believe that the Bible is reliable. A Christian must believe that the Bible is the truth. A Christian must believe that the Bible is divine. Now, we've, we've, we've gone through pile number one, the Bible being reliable. And what we said about that in a nutshell is this. The Bible that we have in our hand, that Bible reached us just the way God wanted it to reach us. Both the New Testament and the Old Testament, we can rest assured that we have in our hands what the original writers wrote. Therefore, we said it, was, it is reliable. We're currently working on driving in that second pile, and that pile is the Bible is the truth. Notice that we're very cautious and careful that we're not just saying that the Bible is a truth. We're saying that the Bible is the truth. There's a very big difference between using the word a and the word the. If you would, King James Version, go to Psalms 119, verse 160. It reads this way. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. John 17, verse 17 in the King James Bible reads like this. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. There is a very big difference, family, between, between saying the Bible is the truth and the Bible is a truth. When you say the Bible is a truth, you leave the door open for alternate truths. However, when you stand and you say that the Bible is the truth, you close the door on all other options. There's a big difference between uh and the. You know, I, I watched this show once with my wife, and it's, the show was called, or entitled, Say Yes to the Dress. You know, so you guys have seen that. Say Yes to the Dress. Now, if you haven't seen it, the premise of the show is that there is a bride-to-be. And that bride-to-be wants to pick out the ideal wedding dress for her special day. And she tries on dress after dress, style after style, color after color. And she even sometimes brings people there to help her say yes or no. And sometimes the people are kind of all right, and sometimes they're a little bit off their rocker. But that's the people that that, that bride-to-be chose. That show, though. That show doesn't have a happy ending with the bride saying yes to just address. The only happy ending to that show is when that bride says yes to the dress. A very specific dress. A dress that rules out all other options is competing against the one that she's gonna put on and have on during her very special day. That's the same perspective that you should have with your Bible. 
there's going to be no other option that I'm going to allow in my life that's going to help make my everyday special. There's going to be no other truth to me but the word of God. I say yes to the word of God and I close the door on all other options. That's got to be your perspective as a Christian when it comes to the Bible. I don't believe in just a truth. I believe in the truth. And to me, the truth is the word of God, the good old B-I-B-L-E. For the most part, when it comes to our Bible, people don't really mind considering the Bible a history book. And it has verifiable things in it. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about ancient civilizations and rulers and dictators and kings and things that happen. And they can flip through that. their other books and find that those things actually ex existed. And they're, they're cool with that. They're cool with our Bible being a historical record. But when we step up and call our Bible the word of God and we take a stance and say it's the truth, then we get into debate. And we said that there are two things that are heavily debated, one in the Old Testament, another one in the New Testament, and we dealt with the Old Testament the last time. But as a quick summary, go there. Go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, King James Version. We dealt with this last time, and it deals with creation. You know, the Bible tells us clearly that God created everything. And for us as believers, the Bible says it, therefore it's the truth. Genesis 1.1, King James Version, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Family, the Bible says that God created. The Bible does not say that we're here by accident. The Bible doesn't say that we are the result of an uncontrolled explosion called the Big Bang. In addition, the Bible does not say that the human species is the result of a primate evolving into man. The Bible says that God created. You know what? We're not even surprised by the fact that science can tell us that all living things share some common DNA. We're not surprised by that. Why? Because the Bible also told us that God made all living things out of the same base material, the dust of the ground. So that don't surprise me. The Bible also says, though, that God made man. He did not say he first made a primate and then that primate eventually evolved into something called mankind. So that's where we close the door in our Old Testament discussion. Today, we jump into the New Testament. And our New Testament discussion is going to revolve around the accounts of the first five books of the New Testament. And those first five books detail the accounts of a life of a man that we call Jesus the Christ. When we begin to talk about Jesus, though, we're going to talk about Jesus in a very practical way, meaning his life. And why practical? Because there are certain things that 
we're not going to be able to delve into concerning Christ until we get to our third pillar to discuss that the Bible is divine. For instance, we're currently talking about the Bible is the truth. There are certain things about Jesus, such as him being born of a virgin, of a virgin, that we can't really talk about until we get in, in our hearts that the Bible is divine, that God is God, that God doesn't have to adhere to the same rules as science says you have to adhere to. Adhere to. So we're going to talk about Jesus in a very practical way. But I like practical because practical gives you something to mold over in your mind to help you be persuaded that the Bible is the word of God. How are we going to do that? I'm going to first bring forward a term that we were going to originally bring into play when we talk about that third pillar. And that term is first-hand account. Say that with me, first-hand account. Now, first-hand account, what I mean by that is that the Bible, in my view, is what I call a first-hand account document. That means that the words and the text and the events come from a person's personal experience or eyewitnesses that actually went through the activity or the event. Even when the author of a book is not the eyewitness or the first-hander, what the author writes is details that the author received from someone who was an eyewitness or first-hander. And that's important. Because we don't want it just to be said that the Bible is a collection of hearsay. No. The Bible is a first account. First-hand account text. If you would turn to Luke chapter 6 in the Message Bible, and let's get started. And talking about the first five books of the New Testament, it's important that we get a feel for who those authors were. Now, many people know just from general discussion out in community and society growing up that Jesus had 12 original disciples. Luke 6, starting in verse 12, Message Bible, kind of says who they were. At about the same time, he climbed a mountain to pray. He was there all night in prayer before God. The next day, he, meaning Jesus, summoned his disciples. From them, he selected 12 and designated as apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter. Andrew, his brother James. John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus. Simon, called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, that's all of them kind of written there in, in text. But let me pull up a slide for you real quick. In case you've never just seen all the disciples' names just written down in a list, here they are. And in some points in the Bible, they may be referred to as a different name. So I, I put that up there also. The one's the best to my ability that I could find them. So the 12 disciples, Matthew, sometimes called Levi, 
Peter, or Simon Peter, John, the son of Alphaeus, we saw that, Andrew, James, sometimes said the son of Zebedee. I always thought that was a funny name, Zebedee. <laughs> Bartholomew or Nathaniel, James, the lesser or younger, Judas, not Iscariot, but another Judas, or Jude or Thaddeus, Philip, Simon the Zealot, Thomas, also Didymus, you might hear that, and then the one that betrayed him, Judas Iscariot. Now, interesting thing about this, when we transition over to the next slide, please, guys. The first five books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts, when we're talking about being a firsthand text, now, Matthew, who was a tax collector, also referred to as a publican back in those days, Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. And Matthew was one of the original 12 disciples. So, eyewitness account. Mark wrote the book of Mark, who wrote of Peter's account. Now, the Bible doesn't say what Mark's occupation was, but Mark was Peter's interpreter. So, what Mark wrote was Peter saw. So, firsthand account. The book of Luke and the book of Acts we're going to come back to. But that was written by Luke, who was a physician and an associate of Paul. Now, John, who was a, a fisherman, and I think Peter was a fisherman also, by the way, who was a fisherman, wrote John. And John was one of the original 12 disciples. Okay? Now, for Luke, turn to Luke chapter 1. Verse 1 in the Message Bible. Now, Luke was a physician and an associate of Paul. Neither Luke nor Paul were one of the original 12 disciples. But listen to what Luke writes in his account here in, in the beginning of Luke. He's writing the book of Luke and the book of Acts to someone called, is it Theopolis? Message Bible. Here's Luke. He says, so many others have tried their hand at putting together a story of the wonderful harvest of scripture and history that took place among us using reports handed down by the original eyewitnesses who served this word with their very lives. So he's writing about eyewitness accounts. Since I have investigated all the reports in close detail, starting from the story's beginning, I decided to write it all out for you, most honorable, honorable Theopolis. So you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt the reliability of what you were taught. Eyewitness account. Go to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Message Bible, Luke's going to essentially tell this dear Theopolis that hey, this is a continuation of what I wrote you in the book of Luke. In the Amplified Classic, it actually has Luke referring to it as the former account that I prepared for you. But Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Message Bible, Dear Theopolis, in the first volume of this book, which is the book of Luke, 
I wrote on everything that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day he said goodbye to the apostles, the ones he had chosen through the Holy Spirit and was taken up to heaven. After his death, he presented himself alive to them in many different settings over a period of 40 days. In face-to-face meetings, he talked to them about things concerning the kingdom of God. As they met and ate meals together, he told them that they were on no account to leave Jerusalem, but must wait for what the Father promised. The promise you heard from me, John baptized in water, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit and soon. So that's Luke and the book of Acts. Once again, first-hand accounts. So when we think about our Bible, we have to realize that the Bible that we're reading is a reflection of what people actually experienced and what they actually saw. Now, oddly enough, launching out from that particular point in time, when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ in a practical way from this standpoint. We're going to start at the end of his earthly life first. In other words, we're going to talk about his resurrection. You see, his resurrection is a key cornerstone to our faith. Without no resurrection, without no title deed, without that occurrence, the gateway to our salvation does not exist. So in establishing in each and every one of us that the Bible is the truth, we must be able to lay a firm hold on, have a conviction regarding that Jesus rose. Adversaries to our faith say that Jesus did not rise from his tomb. As a matter of fact, they state three things. They claim either A, the body of Jesus was stolen. B, that Jesus was not really dead, he was just unconscious. Sort of like passed out from all the pain and anguish. Or C, that Jesus didn't really appear to people after the crucifixion, that they were just seeing things. So we have to deal with those three things. To do that, go to Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to bring these next ones out of the NIV Bible just so that we don't have to keep jumping through versions. So we're going to lock in on the NIV for a while. Let's deal with people saying that the body was stolen. In Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 57, Jesus has already been crucified. And I will tell you up front, you're going to have a lot of scripture coming at you over the next 20 minutes or so. But just bear with me. Starting in verse 27, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. 
going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. So he's crucified. And Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb, his own new tomb, and he had, that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. So put him in the tomb, he's wrapped in linen, and a big stone put in front. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir they, sir, they said, we remember that while he, meaning Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has not risen from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate said. Go make the tomb as secure as you know, as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone. So it was already stone in front. A seal on the stone and posting a guard. Go to Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. So we have, he's wrapped in linen, he's lied in the tomb, stone in front of the tomb, tomb is sealed, and a guard in the front. Matthew 28. Let's just go ahead and jump down to verse, the, the, the verse let's start at verse 1. After the Sabbath, at the dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Let's get down to verse five. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. They go quickly then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, who met them? Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, collapsed. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Go to verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while they were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely, widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So there you have the setup. Go back two chapters to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 has about 70-something verses in it, so let's do a quick summary. This is leading up to, to, to Jesus doing the Last Supper. 
He's getting ready to be taken on his way to go down that crucifixion experience. Let's jump to verse 26. It reads, all, all his boys are around. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when they had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. All right, go down to 31. Now Jesus tells them, this very night you will all fall away at the account of me. What is he getting ready to say? He said, listen, you guys are getting ready to desert me. This is the part where Peter says three times, God, I'll never leave you. I'll never desert you. I'll never turn away from you. Go to verse 35, his last declaration. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now, the important thing is the last part of that. What's that second sentence say? And all the other disciples said the same. So we often look at this and say Peter was the one that said that, but all the rascals said the same. All of them said the same. Go down to verse 51. So Judas turns Jesus in. They come to get Jesus. And you, you've, you've probably heard that in that moment of them trying to seize Jesus, Peter pulls out a knife and cuts off the ear of one of the people trying to grab Jesus. 51 says, with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, if you, if you just take that little bit alone, you would kind of say, okay, so these guys might have the courage necessary to go and get Jesus out of that tomb. But family, to me, that's just adrenaline. That's momentary moxie. That's somebody reacting on the situation before they really take the, taking the time and really absorbed and grasped the fullness of the situation. Let me explain it to you this way. It's like a child that comes home from school and tells his father, Daddy, there is this man at school, this teacher named Mr. Richardson that's always giving me a hard time. And the father quickly, you know, in his moxie before his child, pop off at the mouth and say, listen, we going down there tomorrow, and, tomorrow, and I'm going to get in Mr. Richardson's face, and we're going to get this thing settled out. And this child like, yeah. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Now, the, the, the daddy pop off at the mouth with all this adrenaline before he see Mr. Richardson. <laughs> now, the next day, they get in the car, and they pull up to the school. And as the father is walking to the class with his child, here comes down the hall Mr. Richardson. 
looking like a cross between a linebacker and a, and a Navy SEAL cross with an MMA fighter and a part member of a biker gang. Well-dressed, though, appropriate for school, but Mr. Richardson ain't nothing to be messed with. So in the fleeting moments that the father has before he actually meets Mr. Richardson, he's quickly trying to convince his child that we just talk about these kind of things. <laughs> you see, there's a lot of moxie that goes into certain things when you're not really thinking it through, when the adrenaline is pumping. But once you've had a time to really sit back and observe it for the fullness that it is, all of a sudden, when you come to yourself, sometimes that courage isn't there. I think the same thing is with Peter. How do I know that? Do this with me. Look down at verse 56. At verse 56, just so that you know, he cuts off the ear. Jesus, by the way, puts the ear back together, puts the ear back on. 56 says, Jesus is talking, he says, but this has all, this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. This last part says, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. All of them. But that's not enough. If you keep going, 57 says, those who had arrested Jesus took him to the, to, how you say that? Caiaphas? Took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So he's looking at it now, the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. So he's like, okay, this is serious. This is serious. Go to verse 65. Then the high priest, Jesus says something. The high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Now it's really soaking into Peter. Jesus has gotten himself into some mess. He's gotten himself into a tight. Now, all the things that Jesus said must happen, right now, the Peter's natural mind is thinking, I could end up just like him. Go to verse 70. Because somebody says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? <laughs> now, Mr. Cut Off the Ear says this. <laughs> verse 70. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Go to verse 17, 72, because they asked him again. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. Go to verse 74. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word of Jesus that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Why did we read all that? Family, the disciples 
fled and deserted Jesus way before the cross. Those gentlemen fled and deserted him. In particular, Peter, he denied Jesus. He didn't just deny being associated with the man. He denied even knowing him. And are you to have me believe that people who denied and cowered away from helping Jesus before the cross, that after they and the rest of society saw him beaten and bruised, saw a crown of thorns pressed on his head, saw his broken body struggle to carry a wooden cross uphill, saw him nailed to a cross, lifted up high, and stretched wide. Are you supposed to have me believe that after they say all, saw all of that and in their mind processing that this could happen to me too, that those men went and broke through a sealed stone and beat a Roman guard? No, his body wasn't stolen. He resurrected. The next one. They say he might have passed out from the pain. He might have been unconscious. Go to John 19, starting in verse 28. Jesus went through a lot of torture and a lot of pain. As a matter of fact, there is a scripture that conveys that he was not even recognizable or barely recognizable as a man. That's how brutal the torture was. Here in John 19, verse 28, it said, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, what does it say? He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So he died. Go to verse 33. Now they're going to talk about how they took the other criminals down. He was hung between two criminals. And to make sure they were dead, they broke their legs. Verse 33 says, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already what? Already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So the Bible records that Jesus was dead. But even if we wanted to somehow entertain the fact that this man might have just been unconscious, are you still going to have me believe that having gone through all he went through, lost all the blood he lost, hung up on the cross for almost six hours, barely recognizable as a man, now getting pierced in the side, then going, getting wrapped in linen, sewn steel, sewn stone sealed, guard put in the front, 
that he had enough strength to break out of the tomb, beat the guard, and walk away undetected? No. He's risen. Go to Luke 24. Let's quickly deal with the last one, that people were seeing things, hallucinating, as you might say, that he didn't really rise again. People were just seeing things. Luke chapter 21, chapter 24, excuse me, starting at verse 1. Family, we may be able to get a little skeptical if one person says they see something. But when you get multiple people seeing the same thing, all of a sudden, it's not a hallucination. It's just a matter of fact. Different people seeing the same thing in a different location. It's just a matter of fact. At different times, it's just a matter of fact. Luke 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of Jesus. Now, we've already read in a previous account that Luke said in the book of Acts that Jesus appeared to the women and they appeared to different people. So we don't have to go through a lot of this. Go ahead and jump down to 33. So Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other women. He also appeared to Peter. And now he's getting ready to appear to all the disciples. 33 says, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together. So they're all 11 saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them. And he broke the bread. How he was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, what does it say? Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Verse 39, he said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. It's the only time we jump out of the first five books here. This is what Paul writes. I'm reading this one, this final scripture, out of the easy-to-read version because it just says it so much better. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, now, brothers and sisters, I want you to remember the good news I told you. You receive that good news message and you continue to base your life on it. The good news, that good news, the message you heard from me is God's way to save you. 
but you must continue believing it. If you don't, you believe for nothing. I gave you the message that I received. I told you the most important truths that Christ died for our sins, as the scriptures say, that he was buried and, and was raised to life on the third day, as the scripture says, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12 apostles. After that, Christ appeared to how many? More than 500 other believers at the same time. After that. So he appeared to the women, the women first, then to Peter, then to the disciples, and then after that to 500 others. Most of them are still living today, but some have died. Then he appeared to James and later to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me. I was different, like a baby born before the normal time. Family, they didn't just see things. It was not a hallucination. Our Savior is risen. The Bible is the truth. His body wasn't stolen. He's risen. He didn't just pass out and then work his way out of a sealed stone tomb and fight through a Roman guard. He's risen. Just like the Bible says, the Bible that we have in our hands, the Bible that we come and we read every time we come to church from the book of Genesis that says that God created through all the New Testament that talks about the glory that we can receive by receiving Christ as our Lord and Savior, our risen King, is the truth. That sets our second pillar. Next time we get together, we talk about the third one, that the Bible is divine. Let's pray. We pray that today's message was a blessing to you. If you would like to help us further expand the vision, simply text the word GIVERTM to the number 41444 or visit us online at www.revealingtruth.org. Now remember, Jesus loves you.